Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here in Your presence, uh, Lord, we are again mindful that You're here with us, and we thank You, Father, for this privilege of coming together to spend time just praying to You and lifting our requests to You. And now, as we look into Your Word, Father, we ask that Your Spirit will guide us and direct us as we open up Your Word and look into it. Teach us something. Father, challenge us. Um, Help us, Lord, to, to grow in our faith, to become stronger. Father, we just pray that as we look into your word, we will leave here today different than we were when we came in. That's our prayer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? Now, I know that uh, some of you that weren't here last week are still wondering why it's warm in here. One of these big units that runs this room is not working. And since it's so old, they're having to order parts and having trouble getting them. That's the reason we're taking so long doing this. We've got fans going, and um, hopefully it'll, it'll cool down here even more in a minute. So I think you'll be okay. So just be patient with us if you would. A couple of weeks ago, well, really a couple of months ago, I, I uh, saw an old friend, a friend that I haven't seen in a long time, and a friend that I used to go to church with at another place, and and he and I were talking and catching up on old times and calling Tom. Tom and I were talking and he began to tell me how his theology was changing. And so the more we talked, the more it became evident that what he was doing was falling into the trap that a lot of people fall into of changing the gospel message in order to accommodate Christians who aren't living like they ought to. Now, what I mean by that is this. We so often, we see Christians who aren't living for the Lord, whose lives don't exemplify Christianity. And we make the mistake, especially as pastors, we change the gospel message in order to challenge them in such a way that it implies that if you don't straighten up, you're really not saved, you're going to hell. And sometimes we say it outright, sometimes we just imply it. But either way, it's wrong. And as I talked to him, I kept telling him, I said, listen, man, what you're, you're teaching is works. You're teaching a gospel of works, and it's not what the Bible teaches. He said, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm teaching. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I believe. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and so forth, just like you do. I said, it may not be what you believe, but it's what you're saying. Either way you cut it, it's coming across that way. And what you're doing is you're confusing people and it's causing more harm than it is good. Now, I know the temptation, the temptation to want to stir or even scare people at times into living for the Lord. But you can't fall into that trap of changing the message in order to accommodate the way people live. That's not right, because any other message isn't going to save anybody. You know, as I look and have studied in the past the different cults, I've noticed that there's a common thread among the cults. Now, what I mean by cult, I'm not saying the occult, like demonology or anything like that. I'm saying cults. Cult, a cult basically is an extreme offshoot of a, a mainstream religion. In other words, they mix a little bit of Christian doctrine in with something else. And we've given them the name the occult, or a cult, if you will. Um, and some are founded on uh, a little bit of, of faith and a lot of works. Most of them always, it boils down to this issue. That what they're doing is that they are preaching and teaching and believing in a way of salvation that the Bible doesn't portray. It has to do more with self-righteousness and good works than it does with faith. 
And this is what separates them from mainline Christianity. Now, as you look down through the history of the cults and look at the different founders, what you're going to find is that all of the founders of these cults came out of solid, well, I won't say solid, but at least traditional uh, evangelical churches. Now, let me give you some illustrations. Sun Young Moon, the founder of the Unification Church, the Moonies, you heard about these decades ago. He was born and raised in a Presbyterian home, a solid church upbringing, if you will. Jim Jones, the guy that led everybody down to uh, South America and uh, committed suicide, the People's Temple. He attended a Nazarene church and was even a pastor of a Disciples of Christ church for many years. Moses David, the founder of the Children of God movement. He was a pastor of a Christian Missionary Alliance church. Victor Paul Weirbel, uh, the founder of The Way uh, years ago. He was a pastor of a Reformed church. These are good, solid churches. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian Science Movement and or the religion, and also Charles Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness, were both raised in solid Christian homes. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what in the world happened? Why did these people begin to veer off in their beliefs and, and come up with these outlandish doctrines and these outlandish movements uh, of, of people? And has been labeled a cult. What happened to these people? Well, I believe, from what I've seen, is it always comes back to a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the gospel message. It's some either, I mean, and in most of these cases, I'm going to say they didn't understand the clear gospel. They probably grew up in homes where it was mixed with uh, self-righteousness and good works. And what happened is over the years they began to teach this and and. And it just mushroomed from there into what they founded, the religion they believe. It always comes back to an attack on the gospel. What you believe about self-righteousness and good works as opposed to faith. You say, well, that couldn't happen to you or it couldn't happen to me. Do you know the group of people that the Mormon cult pulls from the most? where most of their converts come from? Southern Baptist churches. You say, well, wait a minute, how can that happen? How could a Southern Baptist church, which is solid on doctrine and founded on a strong biblical belief, on, how could that be? How could they pull from our denomination? How could they pull from our churches? And people go into Mormonism. How could that be? And here's the reason. Because people coming into Baptist churches are hearing for the most part in so many places. They're hearing a watered down, mixed up gospel presentation. And they're not coming to Christ. They profess. They, they, they are Christianized, I call them. But they're not believers because they are still mixed up and confused over this issue of good works and self-righteousness and faith. And how does it all work together? How does it all play out? I believe with all my heart that the problem we have, not only in the Baptist denomination, but in a lot of our denominational churches across America, 
is that in order to try to change people into living like they ought to live, we change the gospel. We change the message in order to motivate people to righteous living. So it comes across like this. That, you know what, faith in Christ is important and that's the foundation for your salvation. But, and you know as soon as the but comes, there's, there, there's something wrong. But, you still got to have good works and you got to live right, you got to do this. And even if you're struggling, you got to at least promise God you're going to try. Now you, listen folks, we do this a lot of times in our gospel presentation when we're talking to people that are lost. When you give your heart to God, when you let Jesus in your heart, when you give your life to Christ, somebody tell me what that means. You see, in our thinking, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we we have an idea what it means, or at least we've reinterpreted it to mean faith. Jesus comes into the heart of the believer, so we let him in. But to the unbeliever, how do they know what to do? I'm telling them to let Jesus into their heart and they're saying, okay, what do I do? How do I go about doing that? What does that mean? To give Jesus your life. Tell me what that means. Now, to some of us, it means and we understand that I am putting my eternal destiny in his hands. Whether I go to heaven or hell depends upon him and him only. I'm trusting him with all of my heart. But to others of us, it means this, to give my life to God or to give my life to Christ means that I'm promising God I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to stop doing all the bad things I've been doing and I'm going to try real, real hard to be a good person. And then he'll let me into heaven because that's what they're hearing. And folks, we have confused so many people and we're reaping the benefits because somebody like a Mormon church can come in and pluck off people out of congregations who are not hearing and understanding the gospel the way that it's presented in scripture. And we don't think that's a big deal. We don't think that it's important. In our minds, listen, if faith saves a person, then faith plus some good works is going to really save them. And it's like it was nailing it down even more solid, you see. And what we don't understand is that's not the way it works. And when we add the the faith and the works and bring them together, all we've done is confuse things and make it a big mess. Today, what we're going to be doing is this. We're going to begin a series on the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians deals with this problem. It deals with this issue. And Paul, if you think some of the things I've said are, are harsh... Wait till Paul eviscerates everybody, because I'm going to tell you right now, the book of Galatians, he takes the sword and just cuts you into pieces with it. Because he, he is harping on this truth that you cannot mix the two. And as we look through this, we're going to look at the false teachings that were going on in his day, see that it has not changed. It's still the same false teaching that's taught today, and it confuses everybody, leads people away from the Lord, away from the gospel, and it's not a means of salvation. And as we go through this over the next few weeks, this is what you're going to see. This past week, a lady comes into my office. She calls, hysterical, crying, wants to come in and talk. So I told her, come on in. We talked for probably an hour. And we'll call her Mary. And Mary is 
sitting there talking to me, and I'm trying to understand her problem and understand her issue. And she's talking about the fact that somebody had done her wrong and she can't forgive this person. She's struggling with forgiveness. And now what has happened is this. Somebody has told her, she's only been a believer for a year now. She said, I I came to the Lord a year ago and I'm still trying to learn. And somebody told her that if you don't forgive this person, God won't let you into heaven. And they pull a verse out of Scripture, misapply it, and now she is in a panic because she's crying and she is so serious. She said, I'm I'm going to church and I'm reading my Bible and I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be this person and I'm trying to do all these things. And I said, why are you trying so hard? Because I want to go to heaven, she said. And so I pulled out my little yellow pad and I began to diagram for her like I often do. And I've done this in here to you. I said, this is a straight line. This is the day you're born. This is the day you die. And I say a year ago, you put your faith in, or a month ago, you put your faith in Christ. And, and you believe that everything in your past is forgiven, correct? Absolutely. I believe it. I've, I've confessed all my sins and I've done this and God has forgiven me. And I said, okay, so what about the future? I said, from now on to the day you die, what do you have to do to maintain your salvation? She said, I don't know. That's what's bothering me. If I don't forgive or if I do something wrong, I don't know if God's going to forgive me. So I began to show her. I said, look, when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, how many of your sins had you committed? Well, none. I wasn't born. I said, exactly. And yet the Bible tells you that God knew who you were, knew every hair on your head. He knew you by name. And when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he saw you and all of your sins from the day you're born to the day you die, and he died for them. He made the sacrifice for them. I said, it is all paid for. And then I began to, we talked about this at length. I'm, I'm giving you the abbreviated version here. But I began to read scripture to her. I began to read salvation passages about the love of God and grace and forgiveness. And she burst into tears. And her comment was this. Why has nobody ever showed me this? I never knew this. And she was almost angry at people in her past in the church that she had attended that they didn't tell her this. And she was confused in in, in all of this stuff because somewhere along the line, somebody didn't take the time to keep it clear and simple for her. Now, folks, she left just hugging me and thanking me. That afternoon, she comes and knocks on my door again. She said, I was going by here to go do something. I just wanted to stop and tell you thank you again. Honey, I wish I had church members like you, you know. But folks, it's important. And here's the reason it's important. Let me read you this verse. Romans eleven six. listen to what Paul says as he writes to the Roman church. He's talking about salvation. He says this, And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Look at what he's saying, because you see, we take this, this position in Christianity that says that it's okay to talk about Jesus And dying on the cross. And if you throw some good works in there, that's icing on the cake. It just tells people they got to do good. Paul says, no, that it is totally by grace. It has to be understood that way. It has to be seen as God's gift to you 
Only because of the blood shed at the cross of Calvary do you have eternal life. And if you add works in there, it nullifies the grace. You can't have it both ways. You can't even mix the two. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, wait a minute. What about good works? What about all the self, I mean, the righteousness of, of the, the believer and the life we ought to be living? Exactly. Those are important. But after the fact, you're getting the cart before the horse. And we'll talk about that more as we study this passage or this book in, in Galatians. But here's what I want to do today. In the time we have remaining, just real quickly. I want to look at Acts 15. And we're not going to get into Galatians until the next week, but we're going to begin with Acts 15, just looking at that one passage. And here's the reason, because this is showing you the origin of the problem that Paul deals with in Galatians. In other words, the problem of grace and works began before he ever wrote the book of Galatians. And it came to a head in this church meeting, if you will, in Acts chapter 15. And we're going to talk about that and clarify some of the issues. Now, let me give you the context of what we're talking about. In the Bible times in which this was written, the central problem in the New Testament was the difference between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Jews were the people to whom God had given the word, through whom Jesus had been born, and through whom his intention was to reach the world. That was what they were supposed to do. We just came through a study in the book of Genesis. We saw how it all began. We saw where they, they, what they were supposed to do. The people they were supposed to be. And now we come in, into, into the New Testament and the Jews are coming to Christ as they, you know, they did all through the, the Gospels as it's presented. Their problem is this. Gentiles are now coming to Christ. Now, a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. That's the term. It doesn't matter what their nationality or ethnicity is. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so their problem is this. Here we are. We're Jews. We have been taught from our birth to obey the law of Moses and to do the right thing and all of the stuff. And we're coming to Christ and we're understanding that Jesus died for us. We're still maintaining our Jewishness. We're still adhering to our old ways, which, you know, in, for the most part was okay, unless they counted on that to save them. And some of them did. And so now these Gentiles are coming and they're coming to Christ and, and they don't have to do these things. They're not doing these things that we do. And so there was a big debate. And on the one hand, you've got a lot of what you see today in churches. You've got people who are coming to Christ and still hung up on the old way of life. Still hung up with, okay, what about sin? What about righteousness? Does God forgive me completely based upon faith? And that's all? Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to obey the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses and all these things, all that Old Testament stuff? I mean, don't you have to do that too? And you got these Gentiles over here coming to Christ. They know nothing about this and they're not having any part of it. And whoop-de-doo, they're saved too. And so we're confused. That's what they're saying. We're confused. And this is what is unfolding now in Acts chapter 15. And look at this. Verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's not a whole lot different than what's taught today. Just plug in something other than circumcision and you've got what most people preach and teach today. Let me explain something to you. They came down from Judea to Antioch. Judea is the region in Israel in which the city of Jerusalem sits. The city of Jerusalem sits in the region of Judea. What it's telling you is this. That some believers from Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, but Judea, the surrounding area of, of Israel, have come now to Antioch, which is over the Mediterranean Sea and in the southern part of, of Europe for the most part. Antioch is the first substantial church that the Gentiles had. It was established and was growing. It was a great church. And Jerusalem is the hub of Christianity among the Jews. And Antioch is the hub of Christianity among the Gentiles. The Jewish Christians are coming over to Antioch and they're saying, no, 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 no. You can't be a Christian just by faith. You have to be a Christian by faith, plus you've got to be circumcised and keep the other laws of the Old Testament. These are important. You have to keep them. And folks, this is what blows up. And look at this now. In verse 2 it says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, look at what's happening. Paul and Barnabas go crazy. What are you saying? Now, Paul and Barnabas are Jews. And these Jewish people from the church of Jerusalem come over here telling these Gentiles they've got to do this in order to be saved. It's not by faith alone. A lot like what happens today. And Paul and Barnabas go nuts. You think that they didn't go nuts? You wait till we get into Galatians to see what Paul says. Because in Galatians, Paul talks about this meeting. He said, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. It says, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed. Now the church appoints them. And they say this, you guys go to Jerusalem, the hub of Christianity among the Jews. You find out what they're teaching. Now folks, here, here's the issue. You cannot say, and this is what you might be thinking, why don't they just read the Bible? It wasn't written yet. They got a problem, see? They had not got around to writing this yet. God had not led them to write the books of the Bible. Paul doesn't write Galatians until later on. And so a lot of what they're discovering is, look, the Spirit of God has taught the Gentiles and He's taught the Jews about faith, and they're trying to work it out among themselves, and they come to an understanding based upon the direction of God as He leads them each one. And they come to the same conclusion eventually. Now it says here that Paul was appointed by the church, and he and Barnabas go, and they take some other believers with them to go see what the apostles are teaching. In Jerusalem, the other believers is interesting because when you get into Galatians, you find out that Paul took Titus with him. Now, Titus was a Gentile and had not been circumcised according to the law of Moses. Paul took him on purpose, and here's the reason why. He tells you when you get into Galatians. I wanted to know that if these Jewish believers 
would accept this Gentile believer who had not been circumcised as one of them. So I purposely took him. We find out in Galatians what happened. Verse 4 says this, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So it's a big happy meeting at the beginning. They're telling them all about Antioch and what God's doing over there among the Gentiles and so forth. But then, folks, for all practical purposes, all hell breaks loose. And listen to what happened. Verse 5, it says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. It didn't take long. Here's what happens in business meetings. You ever been into a business meeting with all the church gathered together to talk about an issue? Here's what happens. This person jumps up in the middle of the uh, discussion and says, Look, that's all well and good. We're glad to hear they're doing big stuff over in Antioch. But if they don't be circumcised, if they don't adhere to the law of Moses in the Old Testament, look, they're not going to be saved. Somebody else jumps up and says, no, that's not true. And then they got a big brawl on their hands. And basically that's where they were at this point. It is just a big stink. Now notice in this passage in verse 5, it says that some of the believers talking about the Jews, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, you've got to ask yourself, is that possible? Man, is that possible? But yeah, it is, evidently, because here Luke is the one that wrote the book of Acts. And Luke basically is saying, he's acknowledging and recognizing that these people are believers. Now, here's what I've discovered in ministry, that there are differing points of view among people. Some people who, who confuse and, and hold to this works and grace issue are not believers. Some of these people who said unless they're circumcised, they cannot be saved. I'd have problems believing that, uh, that person is a believer. I don't believe it. But also among the congregation were people who were just confused. They understood that Jesus died for them and they trusted him as their savior. But they're still asking the same questions that some of you are asking. Man, what about the law? What about the Old Testament? What about living right and the way you live and all of that? Doesn't that come into play? So you see, in any given situation, you're going to have people that are believers and people that aren't. People that understand and are confused for the most part. Some that don't flat out understand anything. When I told you earlier about the cults and the founders of the cults, I believe they were unbelieving people in Christian churches who were just hearing a watered-down gospel message and it never took, took effect. They never understood the gospel of Christ. But at any rate, this is the problem. So it says here that they are in, a, in a basically a big war here. In verse 6, very quickly, verse 6 the apostles and elders met to consider this question. I'll stop there because you've got to understand what's happening. You find out when you get to Galatians that Paul said, I met separately with the leaders to discuss this issue. The, it says here in this first sentence, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. I believe that they withdrew themselves to talk about it. And then they came back to the people. When they come back to the people, it says in verse 7, after much discussion, that's with the people. I believe they talked about it among themselves, came back and, talk, and then discussed it with the congregation. 
And there's a lot of discussion going on, it says. And it says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now listen to what he says. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, what happened? Does anybody know what he's talking about? In Acts chapter 10, it was Peter that God gave the vision to about the sheep and all the different animals. And basically he said, now go over there and you tell Cornelius and his family, these Gentiles, about me. For the first time, Peter came to the realization, God wants to save the Gentiles too. See, that was a revelation for Jews. They didn't know that. So he says here, he says, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now watch. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. First of all, you've got to admire Peter. Listen, standing up in front of a congregation and you're at odds with them already for the most part is one thing, but standing up in front of a bunch of angry Jews, this took a lot of courage. But he stands up and he says, listen, you know that God saved the Gentiles. He did it through me. And you know that He put His Spirit in them just like He did us because we saw the evidence of it. You can't dispute this, that the Gentiles by faith are coming to Christ without the law. Look at what he says here. He says, God who knows the heart, in verse 8, God who knows the heart. God knows the heart of these Gentiles. He sees their faith. And he's acknowledging that. Look at the last part of verse 9. He says, he purified their hearts by faith. Folks, salvation is not about what you do. Salvation is about having your heart cleansed. Heart cleansed from all the guilt of all of the sin that you've ever done or ever will do. God in His grace forgives it all. The Gentiles had their hearts purified by faith in that alone. And this is what he's saying. He says, you've got to see this. Look at the next part of this in verse 10. It says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is, a, this is a pivotal moment in the New Testament. Because the church leaders now have come together, Jews and Gentiles. And they have acknowledged together what the gospel is. It's not the works of the Old Testament. These are things that we do because we're Jews, we're raised this way. These are our traditions. But it's not salvation. God purified the hearts of the Gentiles just like He does us. He's forgiven them just like He does us. And it has never been by works. It has never been by keeping the law. It's always been by the grace of God. 
He says for you as Jews to insist that they do this is putting a yoke on them that nobody can do. We can't do it. Basically, he's saying, is there anybody among us who can keep the law? And there wasn't. He said, not only that, but our ancestors couldn't do it. Folks, you've got to understand, and we'll get into this when we get into the book of Galatians in depth. The law was never given to bring life. Do you understand that? The law was never given to give you eternal life. Never meant to. And Paul explains that in depth in Galatians. And we'll talk about that. I want to talk about something here, this statement in verse 10. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting this yoke on them? This phrase, to test God, is found a lot of times in the, New Te- or the Bible as a whole. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? In Exodus 17, when Moses strikes the rock to get the water to come forth, it's because the people of Israel, even though God said, I will provide water and food for you, they get impatient and they're saying, we want it now. We want evidence of it. We want to see it. So bring it forth. So they tested God, the Bible says, in order to get that water. The other instance where it takes place is when Moses brings the children of Israel up to the promised land. They're ready to go in and they said, oh no, we're not going. God said he's going to give you this. God's going to take you in and and give it all to you. And they said, there's giants in the land. We're not going. So basically what you're telling me is you're not going to take God at his word in either of these situations. There's the word of God. I'm not going to believe it. I want to see something else. I want to see more. And they're testing God. Another example is in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil says, look, if you're really God, throw yourself down off of the pinnacle here and your father will save you. And he says, basically, I'm not testing God that way. God has given his word that I'm to do this and that's all I need. And all of those situations understand this. That when they tested God, they're basically saying, your word is not enough. I need proof. When Peter stands up to that crowd and he says, why are you testing God? They're basically saying, what God said is not enough. I want proof. And folks, every day we do this. We say, in effect, that, this, that, the, that the death on Calvary is not enough. And what God says about eternal life is not enough. I've got to have more. I don't believe that will do it. And we're testing God. We're saying, God, basically you're a liar. And every time that you or I question the gospel in the simplicity of the gospel, we have to acknowledge that God is a liar if we question it. I think sometimes we believe we're doing God a service. I think the Jews thought that. I think we believe we're doing God a service by insisting that there's got to be more. Hey, Lord, you died on the cross for us, so we're going to do all of this stuff and, and really be saved. And all we're doing is nullifying and spitting in the face of God and saying it to God. It's not enough. It's not enough. Look at what happens in the rest of the story very quickly. In verse 12, it says the whole assembly became silent. 
as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And just imagine as Paul now begins to speak and say, look, we've seen it with our own eyes that God loves these Gentile people. He's accepted them. He's given them the spirit just like you. We're all together in one church. In verse 13, it says, when they finished, James spoke up. Now, James and Peter were the main leaders of the church of Jerusalem. This is the hub. This is like First Baptist of Jerusalem. This is the church now. When these two guys speak, people listen. And now James speaks up. And I'm not going to go into all that he talks about, but I'm going to jump down to verse 19. In verse 19, it says, or James says, It is my judgment. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, let me show you something. First of all, in verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God is like a trumpet call to us. Why do we make it difficult? We do it all the time. When God is working in the heart of an individual and they get in front of a pastor or somebody from a church and they screw it all up, we make it so difficult for people whom God is working in. And this is what he's saying. He says, why are we doing this? It's not right. We've got to stop adding all this stuff into the gospel presentation. Things that we think are important or we want to see. A lot of it is important. And we'll talk about where it fits in. But not in the gospel message. Why is it that James is saying to them, instead, we should write to them and tell them not to eat food sacrificed to idols, not to be sexually immoral and not to eat strangled animals and blood. Why does he add that? Look, you know what that is? That's part of the law. That was part of the Old Testament law. The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, and the dietary laws. Why is he saying anything about those things? Well, the next verse tells you. In verse 21, he says, For or because the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Here's what he's saying. We're not adding anything to the gospel message. They're saved by faith just like we are. But here's what we're asking of them. The law of Moses is preached in every synagogue, even in Antioch. There are many synagogues and Jewish people all over the world. He says they're not believers. And we're asking that you Gentiles, in the middle of your freedom that you have in Christ, that you adhere to certain things that are repulsive to the, to the Jews. And that you not do these things because we want them to come to Christ. Because Moses, the Old Testament law, has preached to them, don't rub in their faces the fact that you don't adhere to the law of Moses. Now, some of these things don't matter. The dietary laws and so forth. Sexual immorality does. It's never right to be sexually immoral. And we'll talk about this when we get into the book of Galatians. 
but he's looking at things that are basically are just really repulsive to the Jews and saying, stay away from them. Now, this is all of, of Acts chapter 15 that I want to talk about. But what I want you to see is this. That is before we go into the book of Galatians, that the church fathers stood up. They stood up for what the truth was. They didn't mince words. They didn't try to pacify people. They just stood up and said, nope, that's wrong. Guys, listen, there are, there are people even in our congregation who if you were to ask them to explain, to explain to me why you believe you have eternal life, some of you would mix in works with your presentation. You would talk about Jesus, you would talk about the death on the cross, you talk about faith, and, and right there is where you went off track. I'm challenging you through this study. And first of all, I want you to read this book. If you read the book of Galatians, you'll come in here on Sundays prepared and ready to listen. So please read the book, okay? But more than that, I'm challenging you with something. I want to challenge you to take a stand for the clarity and the simplicity and the truth of the gospel of Christ. That through his death alone, his death and resurrection, you have eternal life. And your faith in that is what saves you. And all the other stuff that we as Christians hold dear comes after that. So many times we try to make dead men act righteous. People who don't have the Spirit of God in them yet, they haven't come to Christ. But we put all of these things out there and say, these are things you have to do too. Why would you ask a dead man to try to live like a righteous man? But yet we do. Let me close with this one last passage or verse. It's in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. This is what Paul writes to Titus years later. Talking about Jesus Christ, and he says to, to Titus, He saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It's not because of righteous things that we've done. It's according to His mercy. He washed us when we were born again by faith. He cleansed our hearts, like He said in this passage we just read. He cleansed our hearts and He put His Spirit in us and we are renewed. Look, when the Spirit of God comes and lives within an individual, they have then, listen to me, they have at their disposal the power to live a changed life. Changed life is important and we're not negating that. But if you try to front load the gospel with a lot of works and the yoke that Peter talked about, all it's going to do is confuse people. They're not going to be saved. They're going to be Christianized. They're going to look like a Christian and sound like a heathen. And they're going to be confused and confuse everybody around them. The gospel has to remain pure. It is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And everything else comes after that. Understand?
Our Heavenly Father, as we stand before you this morning, Father, we are overwhelmed with the truth of your word. Father, I'm overwhelmed with the reality that, that you loved us enough to send a sacrifice to die in our place, on our behalf. And then you turn to us and you give us as a free gift eternal life. Lord, we don't have to work for it. We don't have to promise to be good to get it. You give it to us and then you cleanse our hearts. And Father, not only that, but you give us then the power of your spirit to live a changed life. Father, as we go into the study in Galatians, I pray that you would challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to your love for us and your grace and that we would never be the same again because of it. Father, excite us once again over the reality of who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, may we never, ever be guilty of putting you to the test by saying that your word is not enough. May we stand for that always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.